Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Talking Law from Women in the Law UK. I'm Sally Penny, MBE, a barrister at Kenworthy's Chambers in Manchester, the Joint Vice Chair of the Association of Women Barristers, and the founder of Women in the Law UK. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by a woman often called the Beyonce of the legal world, the one and only Baroness Hale of Richmond. This episode is supported by Kenworthy's Chambers and also Lee Day. Kenworthy's Chambers are proud to support this episode. They are a progressive set of chambers thriving to ensure access to justice for all with professionalism and excellence as a driving force to everything they do. Ranked in the Legal 500 and in Chambers and Partners, their practice areas include criminal law, immigration, commercial, costs, civil and family, and employment law. Find them on LinkedIn and Twitter at Kenworthy's Chambers. They are, of course, my own chambers. This episode is also proudly supported by Lee Day. Lee Day is a national law firm specializing in the more complex aspects of personal injury and human rights law. They are committed to achieving access to justice for all, including full, fair compensation, and do so by providing first-rate legal advice. Now to today's interview, Lady Hale, a woman who really needs no introduction. Britain's first female law lord, the first woman to serve on the UK Supreme Court, and then his first woman president, a career that spanned decades and a spider brooch that launched his own line of t-shirts. I began our conversation by asking Lady Hale about her path into the law. Well, the funny answer is that it was because my headmistress did not think I was clever enough to read history. Or more specifically, to get into Oxford or Cambridge to read history. She was wrong about that, but nevertheless, she and I looked for something different for me to do. And I hit upon law because I had become so fascinated by the constitutional upheavals of the 17th century. When we had our rebellion, we executed our king, we restored the monarchy, and then we had another revolution and laid the foundations of the modern constitution. And I thought that was something so fascinating that I wanted to know more. Wow. And of course, you went to Oxford and stayed. No, I didn't. I went to Cambridge. Oh, forgive me. I knew that was going to happen. Um, (laughs) You went to Girton College. That's Uh, right. Yes, I know. I've done my homework. It's just, it's the nerves of speaking to a great legal mind. Um, and, and you've stayed in the law, having gone to Cambridge and practiced law. And then, of course, you were a lecturer for a short time. You went to the Law Commission and, of course, um, Supreme Court latterly. I'd like to just um, ask you, if I may, about your legal career, which has been really fascinating and extraordinary. Can we start with a case or some cases which has been the most memorable in your professional career? I should explain that when I graduated from Cambridge, I went to Manchester University to teach law. And I stayed at Manchester University teaching law for 18 years. So that was my main career. But the reason I went to Manchester is that they wanted me to qualify as a barrister 
and to do some part-time practice as well as teaching. And it was possible in those days to qualify by home study to become a barrister and to combine a general common law practice at the Manchester Bar, which you know all about, uh, with teaching students and so on. So I did that, but I only stayed at the bar for a comparatively short amount of time because I had to choose between the two. Eventually, the students get in the way if you're taking the longer and more difficult cases, and the uh, cases get in the way of your doing the research and writing that you need to do to get on in academic life. So I chose to go full-time into academic life, where I was until I went to the Law Commission. And then, as you know, I was at the Law Commission for nine and a half years, and then I went on the bench. And I was full-time on the bench for hmm, 26 years. So that's a lot of cases, isn't it? Yes. Um, They're a mixture, obviously, of cases that are memorable because of the people involved, because of the facts, because of the personalities, and cases that are memorable because of the law involved, because of the questions that they raise, and so on. So it's a huge mixture of many different sorts of cases. The case that perhaps the public or those younger than uh, my uh, 20 years at the bar will probably remember, only because it's, it's most recent, is, of course, the prorogation of Parliament, because that case brought not only those perhaps who didn't know you, but the public to know you and the clear way in which you gave uh, that judgment. And, of course, it was televised in the Supreme Court for days on end. So if I had to choose one, I wouldn't necessarily choose that one. There is one with Ali G mentioned, uh, which Mm. is the one I would choose, but I'll come to that. That's Mm. the case that most people would remember you by and of course um your wonderful brooches which again uh, not just barristers and solicitors and those in the profession know you by now but members of the public particularly the spider brooch one of which you're wearing now so i wonder to an extent what you can say about that case because for me that case brought our profession to light really it showed the the excellency and advocacy but it highlighted some of the issues because it was an all-male advocates in that case uh, but we were all thrilled because we could see the three women sitting in the supreme court of the 12th so that was wonderful can you tell us a little bit about that case was there a lot of pressure in that case what was it like because we all lived it we were all stuck in roving rooms around the laptops and then of course a public were watching it live in, you know televisions everywhere How was that case? Well, the main thing about the case was that we obviously had to do it. We couldn't say no because (laughs) we'd got the Court of Appeal in Scotland saying one thing, that Parliament had not been prorogued. That was in the case brought by Joanna Cherry. And we had the Divisional Court in England saying that this was a matter that the judges couldn't get involved with. It was non-justiciable. Uh, And therefore, Parliament had been prorogued. They couldn't both be right. There's only one Parliament. (laughs) So we had to take the case. We had to decide it. And we had to decide it quickly. Because if we didn't decide it quickly, there would be no point, uh, at least in our deciding that Scotland was right. Uh, And so the main feeling was we must get together uh, a full bench of 11 justices as quickly as we can, 
we must uh, set up a hearing within a very short time of the, within a fortnight of the judgments being given in the courts below. And more importantly, we must actually make a decision and communicate it to the world very soon after the hearing. So that was the main feeling that there was uh, an imperative both to do the case and to do it as quickly and as well as we possibly could, knowing that we were in the glare of um, exposure such as there had rarely, if ever, been before. I think we knew that too. We had to we had to behave ourselves very properly, as I think we did. Yes, you did. Well, you did. You did. You yes. did. I agree with you that it was a shame that um, all of the counsel in that case were men. In the earlier case brought by Mrs. Miller, where there were more counsel, in fact, involved and who spoke, there was only one woman who spoke. And that was even worse, you know, that there were more counsel and still only one woman, which was a great shame. This is not to decry the great qualities of the advocates who did appear in front of us. <laughs> Just a personal disappointment that uh, at least one of them wasn't a woman. Yes. And I particularly enjoyed one aspect when uh, Lord Panic, who is absolutely brilliant and for advocacy tutors and barristers everywhere, you know, showed us how to be an advocate as far as I'm concerned, mm. couldn't find a page in one of the bundles. And the young woman from the back came and you pointed out that goodness, mm. thank goodness that she was there and yes. following. I thought that was rather good. Yes, yes. Well, it was very obvious that uh, he's not usually at a loss for a page, but uh, he was on this occasion. And the uh, young woman, who might take it, was from Mishkondorea, who were his instructing solicitors, uh, came forward and gave it to him. And I thought she deserved acknowledgement. Yes. Um, we, we see what's going on behind you, you know. We, we can see the courtroom. We can see uh, what people are doing. Um, behind counsel or beside counsel. Uh, we're very lucky in that respect, whereas poor old counsel doesn't know what's going on behind him or her. Yes. Well, just on that, the Supreme Court, um, you had so, quite some involvement in the design of the court and the carpet and, and so on, really. And it's one of the few courts where you're on the same level as your tribunals. Very different to going to the Court of Appeal, where, of course, everybody's high up, the judges are high up looking down on counsel. I wonder if you can share some of that to, uh, with us, because the building of the Supreme Court is, is wonderful, and you haven't always been there, have you, uh, the Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court has always been in that building because the Supreme Court was only created in 2009. Before that, the um, top court in the United Kingdom was the Appellate Committee of the House of Lords, and so we were in the Houses of Parliament, sitting in a committee room, committee room number one on the committee corridor in the Houses of Parliament. And also, of course, as the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, we had our own purpose-built um, committee room, which was at number nine Downing Street, just inside the gates. As you go in through the big iron gates at the end of Downing Street, just to your right is the building uh, where the Privy Council used to sit. Both of those committee rooms had flat floors because they were there as committee rooms for a committee of the Privy Council and a committee of the House of Lords. They weren't designed as courtrooms in the conventional sense. And so we were on the flat there 
And one of the non-negotiable aspects of our building was that we would uh, also be on the flat when we moved to become the Supreme Court and into the old Middlesex Guildhall. So they had to flatten the floors of what had been the council chamber and what had been the one of the crown courts and what had been uh, actually a newly created court that we made for ourselves. So that was non-negotiable. Because the reason that we want to do that is that we actually want to have a conversation with council. It's a structured conversation. Everybody takes their turn as to when to speak. But nevertheless, it's more of a discussion than uh, being harangued from a central podium, which is what used to happen in the House of Lords and in the Privy Council. We wanted to turn it into much more of a round the table, the virtual table discussion. And of course, nobody wears any robes, which again is um, another feature of the highest court. Well, they don't anymore. When we were in the House of Lords, we as members of the House of Lords dressed as all other members of the House of Lords dress when they're having a committee meeting, that is in ordinary uh, business dress. But council would always robe. So you had this peculiar spectacle of council in their wigs and gowns facing a collection of elderly gentlemen and occasionally me in, in business dress. Well, of course, when we went over to the Supreme Court and became a court, most of us were very keen to stay with the tradition of our wearing business dress. The difficulty was what to do about council. Who was in charge? There were two views about this. There were people who thought that the court was in charge of what it was appropriate for council to wear when addressing them. But there were other people who thought that, no, it was a matter of professional conduct of the bar and the solicitors who appear, what they bore, uh, and that we couldn't impose anything on them. So eventually, we worked out a cunning wheeze, which was that we would offer them the choice. We would say to council, you are free to dispense with any or all of the items of court dress, provided that you all agree. And so the default, if they don't all agree, is that they still robe. But they almost always all agree that they won't wear robes, even in really high-profile cases. Could I tell you the exceptions? Yes, please. The most common exceptions are in criminal cases, because criminal advocates, some of them, do seem to feel underdressed without their wigs and gowns. So occasionally, it, it, in a criminal case, you will find that, that the council are robed. The other exception that I recall was the very first day when we sat in Edinburgh. As you probably know, we have sat for a week in Edinburgh and then a week in Belfast and then a week in Cardiff. And we would have continued that cycle had it not been for COVID. Uh, and the very first day that we were sitting in Edinburgh, I think, again, for the television cameras or whatever, council wore robes, but they didn't on any of the other days, even in the same case. So uh, it was it was clearly to to present a picture that this was a real court really sitting in Edinburgh doing a real job. Lady Hale, can I ask you uh, about diversity? I am a black woman uh, and I spend a lot of time actually probably talking more about my gender than my race. 
Mm. And the wonderful, wonderful campaign by um, Dina Dinah-Smith, uh, mm. who started the first 100 Years Project, and she's going to come on this podcast, was brilliant. Uh, I've always supported and I think it's excellent. And you've been a great supporter, uh, as have many of the other judges, male or, or female. But it's really highlighted the disparity in our profession of where women are and highlighted the many issues. And of course, for so many years, you were the only woman sitting in the Supreme Court. So I want to ask you what you think about diversity and also about the motto of your coat of arms, which I I want you to say for those who don't know. I mean, no problem. What I think about diversity is that it's a very good thing. And there are lots of reasons for it. Uh, Not only gender diversity, but obviously ethnic diversity, professional background diversity, experience of life diversity. These all contribute to a feeling for the public that the courts are their courts, not the courts of some alien elite beings from another planet, you know, who are laying down the law or deciding their lives. These, These are people who stand a chance of knowing how things are for them. I think that's very important. I think it's also very important to have a diversity of thought and approach on the bench. If everybody thinks alike, well, then nobody's going to recognise when the group think is not the best thing. And we want to try and make it the best thing. And diversity helps with that. And and another reason, of course, is uh, there are all these bright people, these intelligent, committed, hardworking people uh, who deserve a proper opportunity to get to the top of the profession. Those are three very good reasons. And there are plenty more good reasons for wanting to improve diversity. What has happened in this century, it seems to me, is that the powers that be have actually got that point to a much greater extent than they previously had. Whether they really believe it, of course, is something I couldn't possibly um, comment on. Because obviously, if you have a profession which has been dominated by elite white men, and although the numbers of judges have expanded, the numbers of barristers have expanded. Nevertheless, it's a finite number. And so the more you recruit different people, women, people from ethnic minorities, uh, solicitors or whatever, to the top judiciary, the fewer positions there will be for the elite men. So it must be really hard for them to accept that that may have to happen in order to improve the situation. But it seems to me that during this century, they have increasingly accepted that there is a strong case for improving the diversity and things have happened. After all, we we have got up to about a quarter women in the High Court and in the Court of Appeal. And until I retired in the Supreme Court, we've got up to more than that on the circuit bench and more than that on the district bench. And in tribunals, they've done the best job of the lot as far as diversity is concerned, because the proportion of women and of ethnic minorities in tribunals yes. roughly mirrors the proportion in, of working in the uh, workforce uh, in the equivalent age groups, which is a tremendous achievement. Yes, and we must um, celebrate that. But yes. Lord Reed has uh, said last year, who was your mm. successor in the Supreme Court, He's got six years before he retires, and he would like to see a fellow judge in the Supreme Court or 
from from a diverse background. I think he would well, ethnic background. Do you I think, think I think what he would like, and, and so would we all yeah. uh, like to see. Well, we would like to see uh, more women because I have retired. Yeah. And Lady Black has just retired. Yes. And so at the moment, there is only one, but we have hopes, um, obviously. Uh, And we would all like to see more ethnic diversity. We have an open and transparent appointment system. It's not a system where somebody is tapped on the shoulder to become a member of the Supreme Court or indeed of the higher judiciary generally. We have gone over to one which depends upon people applying and then going through an assessment process, which includes all sorts of various tools. Now, that is obviously better. And that is one of the reasons why the proportion of women and ethnic minorities has improved so much since that system was brought in. Uh, But it is also a constraint because it's not possible to go along to uh, an obvious candidate, were there to be one, and tap him or her on the shoulder and say, okay, would you like to be a Supreme Court justice or whatever it is, because you can't do that anymore. So you do have to wait for applications. Although obviously people can encourage people to put their names forward. Uh, Some people take a lot of encouraging. Yes. Well, quite, quite. I've had numerous people on here, uh, on this podcast, and it is listened to now, I think, by 44,000 people. And I've been very keen to show to students and to people at various stages of their career that the law is open and welcomes all from all backgrounds, including social mobility and LGBTQ. Mm. And some of those people I've interviewed, I've encouraged and asked them what's next. And, you know, would the bench be a career? And certainly my impression uh, is that they need a lot of encouraging for, for various mm. reasons. So perhaps we ought to take a bet as to whether or not it's going to happen in six years for Lord Reed, as he wishes. Um, I wonder if I can move on then to ask you about your motto and the coat of arms, because I just think it's wonderful uh, and it's women are equal to everything. The coat of arms, you don't have to have a coat of arms when you're a member of the House of Lords, but you are entitled to one. So I thought it was why not? In for a penny, in for a pound. Let's let's go with the whole shebang. But the actual design was more or less thought up by one of my step-grandchildren, who was then about 10. And she had the idea of having towers to represent Richmond Castle, where we have a brilliant tower, uh, and scrolls with seals to represent legal documents, because that's part of the law. Uh, And so that's the basis of the design. The supporters are frogs with crowns on either side. And that, of course, is a reference to my husband, who was my frog prince. And uh, when we got all that designed, I had to think of a a motto. And I I wanted to make a statement about women being equal to everything or anything, because I genuinely believe that we are If we have the right skills and if we put our mind to it, uh, there is nothing that we can't do um, if we want to do it. And I just just love it because it it just summarises everything. There's another aspect as well as being equal to everything. In other words, you can do it. Or at least potentially you can do it. It's not, you know, you have to put some work into it uh, and have the right equipment. 
But also, it, it's a statement of, about formal equality, about women being equal before the law and being equal in rights and dignity. It's a statement about that as well, which I feel equally strongly about. Absolutely. Last year, we lost another brilliant um, judge, um, and that was um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the United mm-hmm. States. And I read a wonderful tribute by the UK Association of Women Judges, uh, which you are president or chair of. And I noticed that there was a lot of commonality between her and all she did and all you do. You know, your care for access to justice, your ability to speak in plain language so people actually understand your judgments uh, and a whole variety of other things, which means that actually being a judge went beyond the courtrooms and actually meant that ordinary people could understand what she stood for mm-hmm. and indeed what you stand for for us here in the UK. So I wondered what did she mean to you and do you see yourself as a as an icon or a, a brooch wearing <laughs> superhero? That's the best description that uh, uh, it, it was uh, the newsreader who who uh, described you as that uh, as a as a at a lunch. Do you see mm. yourself as that? And what did um, Justice Ginsburg mean to you? Well, um, number one of those two questions, uh, I don't didn't see myself as an icon. Uh, I just saw myself as a woman who was taking the chances that came my way in life when they came up, when the opportunities came up to do something, to move on, to do something even more exciting than I'd been doing before. Uh, I seized it. I tried my hardest to do it. The fact that it took me to the top is a combination of all sorts of things, which we don't have to talk about, but it, it was a combination of things. And so I didn't set out to be an icon. If, of course, the fact that little old me <laughs> was able to do that is an encouragement to all those young women from possibly not the most advantaged backgrounds. I, I'm not saying that I didn't come from a, a very agreeable background, but I didn't come from an advantage background. I didn't come from any sort of privilege. If all those young women can think, well, if she can do it, I can, or maybe I can, or I'm going to try. Well, I think that's a that's a very good thing. And uh, I would hope that that is an encouragement to people. And I also think it's an excellent thing if people can understand my judgments. I think that's quite an achievement. Um, so uh, I did work quite hard in trying to make my judgments understandable to people. So that's the first part of your question. Yes. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I suspect, similarly, she won't have set out to be an icon. Uh, she had, in many ways, a more discouraging time than I did. She's Obviously, she was more than 10 years older than me. And the 50s were a harder time for women starting out in the law than the 60s were uh, in the UK as well as in the US. You know, she came did very, very well in her law degree, but had huge difficulty getting any sort of a job. And she did, in fact, get a clerking job with with a federal judge. And then she moved on into academia, which is, of course, what I did. Not because I had any great difficulty in getting into chambers. I didn't. But I felt, for a variety of reasons, I was probably better suited to academia. And anyway, it suited the family circumstances at the time that I did that. And so then, of course, you set about 
putting your academic show on the road, which she did with various books that she wrote, including the first, she co-authored the first book on sex-based discrimination yes. in uh, US law. So she was into equality issues when very few people were into equality issues. Bit by bit, I too got into equality issues, uh, yeah. writing a, a book on women and the law uh, with Sue Atkins. So yes, there are lots of parallels, uh, but I wouldn't claim to be the genius that, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, uh, or to have had to battle against quite the odds that she had to battle against. Quite. I'm going to ask you two questions I always ask on here, then I move on to my others. Uh, number one, just because we're talking about books, and you have written a lot of books, you're writing a book presently, aren't you? Can you tell us anything more about it? Well, it is my memoirs. Yes. So it is the story of the little girl from North Yorkshire who, one way or another, through a series of all sorts of uh, events and accidents and efforts, became the most senior judge in the United Kingdom. And part of the object of the exercise is to be able to speak to as wide an audience as possible, not just to lawyers, to try and communicate something of that story and something of what energised me about the law, which we talked about a bit earlier on, yes. uh, and how if you like the law, it's amazing what the law gives back to you in terms of satisfaction, excitement, intellectual and otherwise. And sometimes, of course, Sally, I'm sure you find the law is rather too exciting. Yes, it is. Um, when you've got a difficult case in front of a difficult judge, <laughs> you yeah. probably feel... <laughs> I, I could do with a little bit more calm here. <laughs> yes, absolutely, as I had before this podcast. <laughs> um, yes, which is brilliant. Now, what's your favourite book? If I permit you to have one book that's oh, meant something to you. I, okay, given given who you are, we might be able to extend it, but I don't want to run out of time uh, with my remaining questions. But do you have a favourite book and um, and why? And do you have a favourite fictional lawyer? They're the two questions I always ask. Favourite book and a favourite fictional lawyer? Yes. Oh, well, I can answer the favourite fictional lawyer quite easily because that is Judge Walden of Bermondsey. I don't know if you have read Peter Murphy's books about Judge Walden. No. Peter Murphy is a retired senior circuit judge who had a very interesting and varied career. And he has written three books, which are collections of stories about this Judge Walton, who is the resident judge in a small South London Crown Court, Bermondsey Crown Court, which of course doesn't exist, it's fictional. Yes. Uh, but they are wonderful, funny, ingenious stories about all sorts of things, but mainly about uh, the battles of him and the other judges, and to some extent the profession, against uh, the people he calls the grey smoothies, uh, <laughs> who are the civil servants. <laughs> so, but it is, they are very good. And they, they, I don't know if you, you'll be too young to remember Rumpole of the Bailey. Oh, no, I do. I do. I loved, he was one of the reasons I came to the bar, disappointing yes. my parents not to read yes. Well, because when Rumpole of the Bailey came along, we all of us said, at last, here is a television series about a barrister, which is true to life. I mean, it was obviously exaggerated and the stories got more and more ridiculous, really, as time went on. 
But the, the essence of what he thought he was doing, why he thought he was doing it, the ethics with which he was doing it, all of that, you know, that, that rang a bell with so many of us that that's why we loved it. Well, Judge Walter is the rumpole of the bench, basically. So that's, that's easy. Yes. Favourite book is difficult because it tends to be something I have recently read, which I, I think, oh, that is uh, a great book. I wish I had written it or I wish I could write it. So it would be impossible for me to pick one out, really, to say which was my favourite book. I've often wondered what book would I take to a desert island with me? And uh, I, I, the answer to that changes every time yes. know, I think about it. Well, have you been on a desert island disc? Because I was trying to research this. No. Uh, I think it is possible that I might be, but of course I couldn't be presumptuous enough to think that it would definitely happen. But I haven't yet been on desert island discs. Yeah. Right. Well, um, watch this space. And also we have a, um, a book club, Women in the Law UK. We only used to read feminist books, but we've expanded a bit now. Uh, and mm. we'd love to have you. We always invite the authors where we can, which is why I've had to expand. So we'd love to have you back and, and um, talk about your memoirs. Actually, it would be wonderful um, to have you. And we look forward to Desert Island, Island Dis. But um, Lady Hale, your husband, Julian, who was a wonderful man, and was very encouraging to many young people. Um, yeah. He was always there. Um, was himself a, a feminist? Or certainly we all formed the view he was a feminist whenever uh, we had conversations. Um, yes. And I'm so sorry that um, he's no longer here and he passed mm. away. I wondered, as a feminist himself and as a man, you know, what, what were some of his views on women and the law? Uh, that you might be able to share share with us. But I'd make the initial observation that a feminist is somebody who believes that women are equal to everything. And there are plenty of men who believe that, just as there are plenty of women who don't. It's not un unusual at all for a man to be a feminist. But Julian definitely was. And part of that was that he was much happier in the company of clever women than he was, I think, in the company of clever men. We could speculate about what the reasons for that were, but there are so many men of his generation, because he was nearly 85 when he died, wow. who were not comfortable with women, just not comfortable with women as equals, intellectually or professionally, just not comfortable. You know, they didn't mind them socially, but Comfort, not the same. Uh, and he was. He was always comfortable with clever women, and it was noticeable. And therefore, they found him easy to talk to. Yes. Because he was interested in them. He asked them questions. And he was more interested in asking them questions than he was about telling them about himself. Yes. And that is the mark of somebody who's a good conversationalist for a start, uh, but also uh, has got a lot to offer other people uh, and isn't just interested in himself. That's that's what it was like, I think. And I've had so many letters from, from women saying just that. And often the cues for selfies with you um, and, you know, from students and practitioners were lengthy, but he often had cues for himself. There weren't mm. always selfies, but he was always deep in conversation 
uh, with mm-hmm. myself and others um, at, at the bar. And so he is and uh, will be sorely, sorely missed. Lady Hale, I know we're coming sort of close to the end, but I want to squeeze a few more questions in, if I may. You care about access to justice hugely. One of the things that certainly I've been concerned about are the effects of the pandemic and what will happen mm. to young people and the pool coming to the bar and, mm. and the difficulties that there are, confidence, imposter syndrome, finances. And I just wondered if you had maybe any three tips for young people um, listening to this podcast mm. or coming and entering the legal profession as a whole, not just the bar, the solicitor's profession as well, uh, about how, really carrying on. Difficult, isn't it, Sally? I mean, I'm sure you've been asked for advice and tips, and it's really difficult. Yes. What I used to say, when I was at Manchester University, one of my jobs was to advise students who were thinking of going to the bar. And what I used to do was to get them to think about all the disadvantages of going to the bar. You know what they are. You're a cottage industry. You know, you're a a sole uh, practitioner not sharing profits with anybody, not making a profit from other people's labor, having to make your own arrangements for your office, your sickness, your pension, etc. Lots and lots of things like that. So that's a stressful situation to be in in itself. And then think of yourself in front of the most stressful judge you can think of yourself in front of um, with the most difficult client (laughs) who wants you to do things that you cannot professionally do and all of those things. Uh, And then I used to say, But if having confronted all of that, you cannot imagine doing anything else, this is what you really, really want to do, then go for it. And don't let any of that lot put you off. Go for it. Give it your all. The other thing I used to try and say to people is you've got to enjoy what you're doing, because if you don't enjoy it, you don't work hard at it. And if you don't work hard at it, you don't do it well. So the tips are enjoy, work hard, do well. I love that. Now, mm. I've got two final questions, I promise. What do you do for your well-being? The burnout rate of the bar is, is very high mm. in the professionalism. Mm. Julian was a keen bridge player, wasn't he? What, what do you do to relax? And my final question, I suppose, <laughs> is what's next? I can't, I can't think of you as being retired. What else is next? And, and I think you're finally going to take your place in the House of Lords, which gives well, us all confidence. Yes. Relaxation. Julian was a very keen chess player. That's what he did for relaxation. Uh, between them, the law and chess, plus, of course, family life and, and so on, uh, were his two big passions. Uh, we started to play bridge together as something that we could do together. But Julian was never as good at bridge as he was at chess. And he was a bit frustrated about why that was the case. Of course, part of it was the the fact that his partner wasn't particularly good either, nor did I take it as seriously as he did. But we had quite a lot of fun. We were good at the things that you could do cerebrally, you know, bidding. The card play, we didn't have the instinctive sense of where all the cards were and which cards to play when and so on, that so many people who are good card players generally do. So, But we enjoyed it. We also enjoyed things like going to the theatre, going to opera, eating out, meeting family and friends. Those are the sorts of things that we enjoyed doing. Now, of course, here I am in Yorkshire 
enjoying looking out of the window at my beautiful garden and enjoying going out for walks, which I can do without getting into a car. I can go for one or two really lovely walks. I've got family nearby, so that is also good. So all of that is very enjoyable and relaxing. And you asked me what next? Well, just to to conclude, uh, at the moment, I am here as content as it's possible to be in the circumstances. I'm busy writing. I'm busy doing uh, meetings, lectures, conferences, and so on. And that's keeping me pretty busy. But eventually, of course, when things calm down, one hopes, I I would hope to get back to London and uh, spend some time in, in the House of Lords. But at the moment, I've not got into that yet because it requires you know, sort of special uh, things to do with, with the parliamentary IT. And I haven't done that. I'm quite busy enough as it is. But uh, I'm keeping an eye on what they're up to in the hope that there will be something that I can do uh, when uh, things improve. Well, I'm sure uh, that there will be. And um, uh, we will all be uh, watching um, with care. And we're thrilled, thrilled um, that you'll be doing that. And you're so techno-able that uh, you've managed to operate this technology with me. So that's a, 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 a sign of how good you are. Or is <laughs> I don't regard myself as at all good at it, Sally, but I'm good enough. <laughs> Absolutely. And Lady Hill, you're wearing another wonderful, wonderful brooch, which is another spider. Is it the same spider that we've all come to love? It's not the same spider uh, because the same spider is marooned in London. Ah. I didn't bring it with me when we escaped from London in March. And uh, so it has. To, this has to be the Richmond spider. Do you decide every day? Which one to wear or do you just sort of go for the closest one? These days, I don't wear one every day. Uh, I probably do wear one if I've got a public uh, event like this. Mind you, this is audio only, but you can see my brooch. Oh, yes, it's wonderful. The normal thing is that each of my brooches finds its way, you know, because they're all creatures, so they can find their way, can't they? Yes. Um, They're animate things. Uh, they find their way to a particular garment and they stay on that garment. Wonderful. So the choice of brooch is dictated by the choice of garment. Wonderful. Well, Lady Hale of Richmond, thank you so much for talking law with me. Thank you for upholding the rule of law, which has been so important um, in the UK and beyond, and for being a role model for so many of us. It's been wonderful, wonderful talking to you. Any words of hope for all these lawyers and non-lawyers during this pandemic? Well, we have to hope, don't we? There is nothing for it unless we hope. And what we need is for the hope to turn into an expectation. So let's look forward to that point. Huge thank you to Lady Hale for giving up her time to talk to me and be interviewed on Talking Law. Thank you so much for listening to Talking Law with me, Sally Penny MBE. You can find me on Twitter at SallyPenny1. Do give me a follow. We'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or a review. Thank you in advance. Thank you to Kenworthy's Chambers, Manchester, and Lee Day for supporting this episode. Thanks to our production team, Sam Walker and Michael Blaze at What Goes On Media. See you next time.